On Wednesday, 21st Feb, the South African budget needed to strike a very delicate balance between an upfront commitment to decisive, sustainable revenue adjustments, credible expenditure adjustments, meeting the funding requirement for new programs in a practical way, and a longer-term vision for managing the fiscal risks of a low growth and contingent liabilities. Joining me today to share some of the insights and further analysis for budget 2018-19 is Coronation's in-house economist, Marie Antalm. Welcome, Marie. Thank you, Kishni. Well, let's start firstly, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the numbers, on a, as a qualitative assessment, what did you think of this budget? Thanks, Kishni. I think that's a, a great question. I think we forget that the budgeting process is painstaking, typically takes a long time. It is undertaken under the auspices and leadership of the, you know, the budget office and beneath that or above that, the minister involved, the political directive that he has. And it's a negotiation and I think often quite a fraught negotiation. And what you need is somebody who then strikes a compromise and says a lot of no's. And we forget that the budget that we had delivered or tabled this week really had to do that in a very short space of time. Yeah, talking about the new political leadership changes. Absolutely. So it's entirely possible that the budget that was prepared ahead of time that's really been in the system since the mini budget last year, which in itself was a huge departure um, from both process and the numbers that we are accustomed to, that it then had to change its complexion completely. So I think we need to remember, and perhaps be a little kinder to the officials involved, that there is this in in the background. What did you think that the budget needed to do? And do you think that it it did that? I mean, we talked about the fact that MTP BPS last year was a departure, both in process and in what we expected. What did you think was needed to be done by this budget? And do you think that it achieved that? I, I think you're right. I think the reality of the numbers that were put forward in the MTBPS and and how bad they were highlighted that the fiscal position was not just fragile, but really was approaching a a desperate state, right? And everybody was aware or has been aware that this budget needed to deliver something quite remarkable in order to stabilize that situation. We've been faced with, you know, two ratings downgrades. We're on the cusp of being warned that there's another one in the wings. And within this limited space of time with really practically limited fiscal resources. The budget needed, in my view, to do two things. Firstly, it needed to be able to plug the revenue hole, right? It needed to say, we are making a decisive decision to implement changes to tax revenue, which are durable and hard hitting enough to make a meaningful change in that trajectory. And they did have a few things to play with, but the obvious one was uh, an increase in VAT or a change in the VAT regulations around fuel. And hand in hand with this was a very strong signal of the political will that backed that decision. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing that it needed to do is create a credible framework across the medium-term expenditures framework. So over the next three years, that could see South Africa on a more sustainable fiscal trajectory than what was put forward in the MTBPA. So we can't find a situation in which we're going back to where we were in the budget last year, but relative to the MTBPS, we needed to create a framework that suggests South Africa could be on a more uh, sustainable path. And I think this budget mostly did that. Yes, not not everything, but mostly did that. 
Um, just the increase in VAT going from 14 to 15 percent, do we think that that was enough? And how do you think they tried to strike a, a balance between the political backing to, to do that a year before elections? I think that's a great question because that's also sort of playing in the background of this complex fiscal budgeting process is that we are one year ahead of an election, right? And so it's quite difficult to sell an austere consolidation fiscal, you know, budget. It hasn't worked for any of the governments in Europe. Exactly, exactly. So you are right that there is a, certainly a political narrative in the background which makes an austere fiscal budget for this year quite a difficult one to balance. So I think that the first thing about the VAT increase, the first time since 1993 that a change has been made to VAT, that's quite unusual. Many countries have, have used um, value-added tax as a lever to adjust revenues, right? And it's quite a lucrative one. So that should generate a little bit more than 22 billion rand in this, the current fiscal year. But that's only part of the package. In fact, total revenue adjustment for this year is 36 billion rand. It's a lot of money. And in fact, it's considerably more than we had last year. And last year felt quite painful as it was. So last year's adjustment was 28 billion on the revenue side, and we now have 36 that is the primary resource that's been used to generate that revenue. And then the second largest revenue generating um, resource was to not adjust for fiscal drag across the earnings bracket. And that generated about another 6 billion rand. And then there are a few other mechanisms that they've used. So we've seen a general increase in the fuel levy. The sugar tax will come in. There's been some adjustments to add the taxes, taxes and up. the usual sin taxes have gone up as well. So in total, the total uh, revenue package delivered for this year is 36 billion. And then let's talk about one of the parts of the expenditure component that's generated a huge amount of discussion, and that's the funding of uh, free higher education for households that have 350,000 or less cumulative income. Firstly, I mean, let's just talk the figure of 57 billion. A lot of questions about whether that number has been calculated correctly to actually allow for first, second and third year should an individual actually pass and go into it. And then secondly is, was that not too ambitious given the current fiscal situation? I must say, I mean, just looking at the overall balance between revenue and expenditure, we've talked about revenue. I found the expenditure profile a little bit disappointing, right? So we have uh, 85 billion rand in expenditure cuts over the three years, but that's kind of offset by exactly what you're talking about, a reallocation, a reprioritization of some of that expenditure to this commitment to free tertiary education. I was surprised by how big that commitment was. I thought they'd try and moderate it a bit in light of some of the fiscal constraint we're faced with. And it's hard to know. What we do know is when you look at the numbers, there is a stepped increase in that cumulative 57 billion to account for people who will come into first year this year and then be in first and second year next year and first year, second year and third year in the third year. Whether that is an adequate allocation is really hard to tell because it's not clear at this point how many additional spaces are available, how administratively the universities will accommodate additional people. And so I think it is a reasonable allocation to have made, but there is a great deal of uncertainty around it, right? So, and in fact, just to highlight on the expenditure side, and we can come back to education, is that in order for any fiscus to be sustainable, you really need to be incredibly conservative and conscientious about how the expenditure profile looks and where the underlying allocations are made. And for us, the biggest challenge is in fact, 
not necessarily education, it's managing the wage bill so that expenditure through time is actually sustainable. So that's the, the public sector wage bill that you're talking about. And, and, and let's talk about that because that was going to be my next question, is it feels a bit disappointing that that hasn't been addressed more strongly, given that we know it's been a decade in which it's ballooned, it's accelerated towards the end, there's a huge number in terms of just officials that shouldn't be there. Just just walk me through what expectations we had and what we think they should be doing if they really want to get expenditure under control. So in fact, just a little bit of history to that is that we saw an enormous increase in the number of civil servants in the aftermath of the financial crisis and as the Jacob Zuma administration came into power. And then in addition to a huge increase in the number of people who were employed by the public sector, they got a large number of very big real wage increases that then, you know, added to that momentum and the ballooning of the wage bill over time. Where we stand now is at least that we are back to a multi-year wage negotiation process, which helps a little bit manage the increases. And we have a sort of soft cap or a cap on employment. So we're not actually actively employing more people. And in fact, actually, there's been an attrition in the number of civil servants. But that is a very slow and painful way to adjust down the wage bill. What you really want is a more active intervention into trying to reduce the number of uh, public sector employees. That hasn't been the case. In chatting to National Treasury officials, there was a question about why the allocation to the compensation budget hasn't changed. So what we do have in the numbers is that National Treasury is expecting to spend, on average, 7.3% on compensation, total compensation, over the next three years. Now, that doesn't sound so bad, but when you start linking it to inflation plus a real increase, plus pay progression, which is the movement of civil servants within their earnings brackets, a little promotions inside of that, you then add CPI plus one for a real increase, plus one to one and a half for pay progression, becomes enormous. I think there are two aspects to it. The first aspect is we are in the run-up to an election, and it is quite difficult to be negotiating at this point with unions and say, so we're going to cut headcount as well. So we're going to just slash your budget and then let's go and talk about wage increases around the bargaining table. I think that's very difficult politically to do. And I think practically without sufficient planning, without sufficient warning, given the timing that we've spoken about, it's quite difficult to signal adequately in this context. So a little bit disappointing. It's not necessary that they are going to blow this budget, it's possible that there's been sufficient job losses just naturally over the last year, and that inflation could undershoot to give them a bit of wiggle room. Um, But it certainly is a considerable risk. So let's talk National Treasury. One of the things that was part of the budget is just an adjustment in the macro assumptions to reflect a slightly more buoyant growth. Can you talk through this improved outlook, uh, whether we think it's believable and what impact it does have on the deficit trajectory that we were given, especially in the MTBPS? I mean, so just in terms of the budgeting process, one of the key assumptions that's made, obviously, is the growth context in which uh, the framework in which they are then allocating funding and estimating revenue. And there are a number of assumptions that need to be made about growth and their direct outlay or delivery into revenue. So the growth forecasts and inflation forecasts are very important. There was an upward adjustment to the growth forecasts. I don't think that the numbers that have been put forward are unreasonable. So National Treasury expects growth to be about 1% last year um, and accelerating to 1.5 this year and by 2020 to about 2.1%. I think it's quite hard for us to imagine growth at 2.1% because we've been growing at less than 1% for three years. But in fact, your levers to generating growth, uh, whether you agree with 
the mix that National Treasury has, and they publish it in quite a lot of detail or not. I think if we stand back and we think about how deeply constrained the domestic growth environment has been, first, it's hard for us to remember that easing, but secondly, maybe it's not that difficult to make it happen. If I think about consumer ex expenditure, which is the largest chunk of GDP and has been incredibly weak over the last two or three years, it's been weak because not only because people haven't been able to spend, so the fiscal adjustment hurt last year and high inflation was a problem the year before, but because people haven't wanted to spend because confidence has been so low. A simple household decision to replace a dishwasher or buy a new car or simply borrow a little bit more to buy something that hasn't been on your agenda or hasn't been, a, um, you've been unwilling to make an outlay to. Actually, at 60% of GDP, private consumption expenditure counts, small adjustments can go a long way. I think for a pickup in capital expenditure, we probably are going to have a little bit more of a lead time. So for me, the adjustment to CapEx expectations is a little bit punchy just because it requires planning. And, and we need to see to believe a little bit. But in the current environment, I think that we have created a context for public-private engagement in a much more pragmatic way than has existed for the past 10 years. I mean, I think that's quite an important point to make. It breaks from the budget and it relates more to Sona. But a President Cyril Ramaphosa has tried to reach out and unify the efforts and growth opportunities that can be generated within the country. That seems to have gained quite a positive premium. We're calling it the CR effect. Yes. And do you think that that could have a good impact on just promoting growth over the next five years? I really do. So, I mean, I think that, again, we're coming off such a low base, but in his capacity and his willingness to simply engage, we have not had a good dialogue about growth possibly since the Harvard group was here in the early 1990s, right? We need a forum in which people are willing and able to sit down and engage with labor, with government, with the private sector. I think Clem Sandner calls that an economic codessa. An economic codessa. And maybe we need to revitalize and rethink NEDLAC. I mean, whatever it is, and say, these are the resources which are available. We have to address poverty, inequality, transformation. How can we best do this? It's not to say that you have to suspend ideological preferences, but we actually have only the resources that are available and we need to utilize them in the most effective way. And I think that a president Sora Mposa is more alive to this need and probably the most capable person I can think of, of fermenting that kind of discussion. So I think it's a very important thing. Just uh, on that, though, um, the budget, there was a bit of a departure from, from tradition in the budget. And in fact, while, again, possibly because of timing, the first chapter in the budget addressed the need to restore confidence and to improve prospects for growth. And I think that there were some important guidelines laid down in that, which are clear priorities for the government in terms of addressing the need to accelerate growth in the short term. And I think one of the things that they tried to reiterate, um, not only in SONA, but also in the budget, is the need to actually ensure policy certainty going forward. Well, this is, this is exactly right. So in fact, one of the first items listed in that chapter around growth is needing to address the uncertainty in the mining sector and the transformation of that sector in a practical way. And the second thing that is highlighted is telecommunications reform. What do we do about broadband spectrum? So there are certainly some very practical, very necessary, perhaps low-hanging fruit issues high up on the agenda where perhaps there hasn't been sufficient discussion yet or agreement yet to put it on paper 
but it's definitely on the agenda. So a good budget overall, and especially considering the short time period um, in which this budget was tabled after political leadership changes. Do you think that uh, combined with the positive CR effect that we've seen has been enough to maybe stave off a Moody's downgrade? I think it's still an uncertainty and I think there are still risks. But if you look at the issues of concern that Moody's laid out when they put us on negative outlook for a downgrade at the end of last year, I think there is sufficient evidence of intent to do the right thing. What do I mean by that? We have had a change in political leadership. We have had a direct intervention into the board of Eskom, which is a definitive concern for Moody's given its um, the contingent liability that it implies. And just in terms of the risk that it is, it is simply not an ongoing concern, right? So, so let's start with saying, firstly, the change of political leadership and the positive sentiment and momentum that has surrounded that. Secondly, the direct intervention into Eskom, the investigations into corruption. And thirdly, the budget, we didn't get onto debt and the deficit, but given the growth forecasts, we now see a debt trajectory that is more manageable at 56.2% of GDP in the out year. I think taken together that on balance there is sufficient intent delivered for Moody's to offer us a stay of execution. Not a removal of the negative outlook, but just a stay of execution. On that note, I'm going to say thanks very much uh, for joining me today, Marie. And thank you for listening. If you are interested in other episodes, please join us on our podcast channel, which you can find either via our website or on our correspondent app or download them directly from iTunes.